of Atlantis. Your foul species is hereby banned from the seas and oceans of the world. Any who enter the waters will face my wrath. Imperius Rex! Hello and welcome to another special edition of Third Degree Burn. I'm Kirk Greenfield, your co-host, and we're looking at the Namor series by John Byrne that was produced in the 1990s. It does look like uh, this, this story, or at least this series, is a bit darker in color and in tone than many people were expecting, as John Byrne is inking his own work. But the overall shading, I think you'd have to agree, is a little on the dark side, and it's leading to a dark nativity or an anniversary that is coming up, not in this episode, but in the next episode. We'll get to that in a moment. And I am joined here, as always, by my co-host, Tim Elliott. Hello. And he's got the heavy lifting for the first episode, which is going to, I'm sorry, the first issue of this two-part presentation, which is now issue eight, and I'm doing issue nine. So, Tim, welcome aboard. Oh, thank you. It's always always good back to uh, continue our coverage of uh, The Avenging Sun. Uh, As we said, this is issue eight, and we're doing eight and nine, which kind of, if you've been listening to our shows, this kind of maybe not permanently ends, but it kind of wraps up the headhunter storyline that he has been sprinkling in and all the other issues leading up to this. So this is primarily the headhunters uh, issues. I don't know about you, but <coughs> I, I will share at least that, that this fell off to me. Um, True. I was Eight, put off yeah. by this story, but we can discuss that after the fact. Yeah. Um, it, it just, I thought it was an odd character. I thought it was an odd concept. And I can see, I can squint and see where it came from in hindsight, but uh, let's not spoil it. Okay. Want to start right, with one? Yep. Yeah, issue eight, uh, Namor, Submariner, issue eight. We have a cover price of $1. Our writer, artist, and inker is John Byrne. He is these last, I think, three issues he's been inking himself. Um, our colorist is Glennis Oliver, letter is Kenny Lopez. Our cover art's by John Byrne. Our editor is, again, Terry Cavanaugh. And our editor-in-chief is still Tom DeFalco. This had a release date of September 4th, 1990, with a cover date of November 1990. 32 pages, 22, which are story. Namor, Submariner number eight, titled, Never Bet the Devil Your Head. But he has, and we've mentioned this, he has, he has done the last couple issues, he has... That's the title of this story, but on the cover, he has more of like a blurb or a teaser. Because on the cover, it just says, Heads I Win, and it shows the headhunter, which is the character we've been introduced to, who dresses all in red. She's uh, she's albino. She wears these like dark glasses. and dark glasses. Yeah. She dresses very uh, kind of 30s or 40s, I would say. I don't, I'm not a fashion expert, but... She's got like pinstripe pants and a blouse and kind of a fashionable necktie kind of thing. Ascot, maybe. I don't know if that's what that would be. Uh, she looks like she kind of dresses like she's, uh, again, out of either the 20s or the 30s. And she's up against a wall with all these heads mounted like a deer's head behind her. And she's got these um, cartoonishly long knives stuck to her fingers. 
and we see one plate that says Namor, and it's empty, but it's got the word reserved across it. So this is a culmination of obviously something is not going to be good for, for uh, Prince Namor. Okay, our players in this uh, issue are, of course, Namor, uh, Caleb, and Carrie Alexander, who were introduced in the first issues, or, her, or his friends from who kind of, you know, Caleb is the one that kind of saved Namor in the very first issue when he was introduced. Uh, Phoebe Mars, Desmond Mars, the Mars twins. Namorita. Um, we have flashbacks to characters from our previous episode, Carolyn Sheridan, um, and then we introduced, uh, we drop in a little bit with Misty Knight, Colin Wing, uh, Danny Rand, and our prologue deals with the mysterious doctors from last issue. Okay, opening prologue, Berlin, 1961. An abandoned warehouse in a secluded area of the city. The night This is the night before the Berlin Wall goes up. A small man dressed in a lab coat attends to a figure wrapped in bandages in a large glass tube filled with a strange yellow liquid. A very Aryan-looking man in a black trench coat urges him to hurry before they discovered. Two men finish and leave the warehouse with a tall man with a scarred face and an eye patch. Before they can make their escape, a group of armed guards tell them to halt. Trying to escape, the doctor is shot in the back. The man with the eye patch drags him to the car, their escape car. The VW speeds off and makes to, makes its way to the west side in freedom. Free west guards, free west side guards stop them. Patch explains they are escaping from the east and they need a doctor for their companion. As the guard turns to help, he is rewarded with a shot in the back. The small vehicle speeds off. End of prologue. We open in 1990, New York City. A weakened submariner awakens on top of a skyscraper covered in the remains of sludge. See last issue. Flashback. A gigantic sentient creature composed of living garbage and ocean sewage attacked Manhattan. The scientists who were responsible for the monster creation provided Namor with a gene scrambler virus to stop sludge. Namor delivered the viral agent into the heart of the mass. The results were immediate and dramatic. The creature lost control and broke down, flooding the nearby buildings with raw sewage. End flashback. Namor needs to find his cousin Namorita and the others who were trapped inside sludge. See last issue. He jumps from the roof only to plummet to the ground. His ankle wings are gone. He suspects the anti-mutant virus used to stop the creature must have dissolved his wings, since he himself is a mutant. He catches a passing flagpole and swings into an open window to the surprise of office workers. He slowly walks to the elevator. Let the humans look on him in awe. Now we cut to Battery Park. First responders are searching for survivors in the remains of the sewage monster. Last issue, Namor discovered Sludge was keeping its victims alive in some sort of cocoon. Namorita breaks out of her cocoon. She rushes to free the others from the enclosures as her cousin Namor arrives on foot. He asks how he wound up in the park. Uh, she asks how she wound up in the park. The Prince of the Sea is about to explain when a police officer with uh, another associate of the scientist Weinstein approaches. Weinstein explains everything Dr. Sheridan told him about the creation of a sludge was a lie. See last issue. Dr. Sheridan and Dr. Anderson never actually created artificial life. Their funding had run out, and they used their own cells to clone a form of life, and Sheridan manipulated its genes to fake true artificial life in order to buy them more time to actually create life. 
but their CEO announced their success and then they had to cover their tracks. They had to just cover their false story. They concocted a story of a zealot breaking to the lab and destroying their work. They lured a junkie to the lab with promises of drugs. They murdered him, making it look like suicide, and then they wrecked the lab. Dr. Sheridan even burned her own face to lead credence to the story. The officer informs Namor the two doctors were killed when Sludge flooded the city. Namor worries about the effects of Sludge's remains, but Weinstein explains the creature had mutated into something less toxic, so no need for uh, inoculations for everybody who was exposed to it. Carrie and Caleb Alexander have been freed from their cocoons, and Carrie rushes in and embraces Namor, while Caleb asks what all the remains are. Namor laments the death of Sludge. Did the creature have the same rights to live as others? The three leave the authorities to attend to the other victims. Then Phoebe Mars rushes in. She's in a panic. Headhunter has taken her brother. See last issue. Namorita tells the group, Headhunter is a major mover and shaker in Wall Street. Namor consoles Phoebe and asks her, his cousin to take care of the Alexanders. As a couple walks off, Namorita is shocked to see her cousin's ankle wings are gone. In the back of a Mars limousine, Phoebe explains Headhunter took her brother as payment for a deal the twins made with her a few years ago in exchange for services. Namor swears his help to keep her brother safe. Phoebe, Phoebe is very appreciative. Cut to a hotel overlooking Broadway. Misty Knight and Colleen Wing. Misty Knight and Colleen Wing are worried. She Misty Knight, excuse me. Colleen Wing is worried about her partner, Misty Knight. Misty is brooding and drinking over Danny Rand's death a few months ago. See, Power Man and Iron Fist issue 125, that would have been June 1986, so real time about three years ago. And, they and the disappearance of Tyrone King. They are interrupted by a news report that Danny Rand has returned. Cut to a press conference where the vice president of Rand Meacham introduces the very much alive Danny Rand. More on this later. Back to the offices of Oracle Incorporated. Carrie reveals her true feelings for Namor to her dad. She broke it off with Submariner in issue number one, feeling for her own safety, but now these weeks later, she realizes she really loves him. She's suspicious of Phoebe Mar's obvious play for the Avenging Prince. She asks for advice from Namorita, but the young Atlantean is worried about her own ankle wings. Will she lose them like her older cousin? Namorita is not worried about Namor. He can take care of himself. She's curious where the where he met the Mars twin. Why does then why does it bother Carrie? She thinks the head of Oracle, but Carrie thinks that the head of Oracle Inc. is in grave danger. Namor and Phoebe arrive at the building of Headhunter. Namor says it looks innocent enough. He sweeps the twin off her feet out of habit. They will have to take the elevator like mortals. Namor asks Phoebe to take him to the head, uh, Headhunter's headquarters. They take the private elevator to the penthouse. On the ride, Phoebe's attra attraction to Namor grows as he confidently announces the matter with her brother will soon be resolved. The elevator door opens to a room bathed in red and a welcoming headhunter. She greets the submariner. The mysterious woman mispronounces his name as a way of testing him, testing him for weakness. The uh, Atlantean bristles at the mispronouncing of his name. The avenging son demands the release of Desmond. She lets him in. She lets the man while explaining her contract with Desmond is all above board and legal. A troubled Phoebe asks if she would reconsider, but Headhunter tells her she is too late as she leads them to a room with mounted heads on the wall. Desmond is one of them. To be continued.
Very good. Thank you. I, I stumbled a bit reading my own work, but that's okay. You can fix that in post. Yeah. So yeah, uh, this was a kind of a catch-up issue, and yes. also moving the forward the story forward a little bit. Yeah, quite a cliffhanger there at the end. Um, the obvious thing being that uh, Headhunter <coughs> obviously is uh, collecting heads. We've, we've kind of figured that out. Yeah. Uh, there appears to be no way to reverse this. It looks like, uh, you know, she's got Desmond and the other two are shocked. So quite a cliffhanger at the end there. It occurs to me that the white albino skin and her 1930s dress. I had wondered if Headhunter was going to be revealed to be a vampire ultimately. And that's why that would fit. That would fit. Can't stand the sun. And I think there's the possibility that maybe that was intended, but somebody changed direction. Also the knives that she has attached to her fingers. There's just two of them. They're very elongated, like uh, Turkey carving knives or perhaps an oversized uh, straight razor that that's what it looks like to be a straight razor barber would shave with. Um, But that seemed to be an obvious nod or or um, play on Wolverine's popularity (laughs) of this time as well. True. So those are my thoughts looking at at the cover. Um, It's quite textured cover. And every time we see her, there's always these stripes, red stripes, red plaid, red, red, pink, scarlet in particular, all over the place. So she has quite a theme going here. Um, And and while I recognize it, it's an interesting choice. It also sets me on edge. I'm not certain why. The redness or the... Oh, a combination of the redness and the... I mean, I got it. She's she's hiding from the light. She's uh, photosensitive. Yeah. Okay, I got that, but it's it is a bit unnerving because it's the motif that she is constantly displayed in, um, and to some degree, she acts like this spider welcoming the flies to her her web. Uh, by the end of this issue, well, she is very confident in what very. she does, and we don't know exactly what she does. She is somehow she stated several times that where there's you know, where there's opportunity, there is money to be made. So she has something to do. And name Marita does say she's a mover and shaker on Wall Street. So she has something to do with finances. Yeah. We know we've kind of seen these heads in shadow. And uh, we, we do know they talk to her. So they are still alive or they are capable of speech because we have seen them talk to her. If, if, if not like a robotic or more of a, um, uh, uh, controlled response, not not like anybody that was, um, uh, you know, fighting against what happened to them. So we still don't know if they are alive. What the whole story is, we know that she did something for. I guess she she's like a like a troubleshooter. She does people in business will go to her, and they need something fixed, and she will. As they say, she makes problems go away. And the payment is, then I get to come collect your head at some time in the future. And these people are either desperate or they think, well, she's, she she's can't possibly do that. 
you know, so they accept her terms. And Desmond, in our last issue, I think he offered up his sister when Headhunter showed up to collect. Yeah. He offered his sister, and she said no. You know, she wanted him. And we uh, we don't see his head. We don't see his head on the wall on the cover. So I guess that would have spoiled the uh, the cliffhanger yeah. ending. Yeah. We do you get a raise. On the cover, do you recognize any of those faces? I don't, and I don't recognize any of the names, but they have, other than Namor, they have to be probably friends of Byrne or something. I mean, you know, he probably in, said, hey, can I put your head on the cover? Yeah, in particular, there are two that I think I recognize right behind her hips. Um, there is, uh, they're not labeled. You can't read their names, um, but behind her like right shooter. Hip, that shooter yeah. on the right? Jim yeah. Shooter on the right, and on the left, a bearded um, Roger Falco Stern. or Stern. Yeah. Um, those are the only that I recognize. Um, and I'm, I don't think he goes overboard on that. And we may be reading something into it there. But uh, I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, I think you're right. That Well, we know Byrne has in past when he draws... You can tell when he draws a face that looks like it's not just a character he's created, but he's he's trying to um, capture the likeness of someone. You can kind of tell. He puts a little more detail into it. And these are probably, these could be friends and family. They could be colleagues. It could be any number of people. Maybe the names are different or maybe just the likenesses are there. But um, she does, and I, I guess what, what matches her attire is because of her headquarters is, or her, where she, her penthouse is always bathed in red. We get a lot of shadows. We get a very noir look and feel, which matches her clothing. Kind of a 30s, 40s kind of a, uh, you know, she's not like a femme fatale, but she's almost uh, not androgynous, but kind of asexual. She's kind of Feminine and masculine at the same time. She's yes. not, you know. It occurred to me that it might have been a boy impersonating a gal, but that's that doesn't pay off. Well, she's got a very stylized, kind of, not a page boy, but she's got a very shorn... Pixie. Uh, I, 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 pixie, yeah. And I said it looks a lot like the haircut he gave Johnny um, Johnny Storm at one point in the FF run. But Yes. Uh yeah, this, this issue is a lot of, it's about half recap, kind of catching up on the Sludge story, which was at the last two issues, and this uh, this German story that kind of, you picked that up last last issue where there's, they looked like they were reviving, uh, this is back in 61, but in the other issues it was in the present day, and they were trying to revive some kind of a almost a, a Bride of Frankenstein kind of character or person inside a large tube that had been in this warehouse for for decades. And this is the same doctor that we see as a much older man in the in the present, or because they they're setting up and they mention um, <coughs> von Strucker from Hydra that he had, I guess, provided the equipment. And that's why this little doctor is so important because when he gets shot, 
I don't know who this um, the guy in the he looks almost like a, a Nazi J. Jonah Jameson. He's got an eye patch and a buzzed haircut and a, and a mustache. Uh, they they rescue the doctor because he's the only one that knows how to work the machine. So if they ever want to, whatever their plan is with this person that's in the tube, they need his help. That's why they risk getting him after he's shot and they put him in the Volkswagen. They speed off because um, I guess this is, they said by morning, I guess the barricades are going up and that's when Berlin becomes separated east and west. So they have to get to the um, the west side before the barriers go up and they're trapped, trapped. And they yeah, this was a major world political event in 61. Yeah. I would have been five years old, but this was the biggest thing that had happened since and directly as a result of World War II. So. It's a weird, and I, of course, you know, growing up, you knew about it and I was around, you know, when they took the wall down, but I can just imagine living in a, a city that's separated like this, that I mean, to my understanding, I guess you could travel into the West. If you're in the, if you're in the West, you could travel into the East, but if you're in the East, you couldn't get out. Uh, that's right. Yes. And there wasn't a wall around the city. There's just a wall dividing the city. It was correct through the middle. It was uh, like a wall of Jericho uh, dividing the, the uh, various halves. At the end of World War II, Berlin was split, in, split into four quarters uh, for the Allies and the Russians and the French and I think the British. Uh, at any rate, that's where this idea of a divided city sort of began. But then suddenly in 61, the Soviets uh, bricked up the wall and, and basically held... East Berliners um, hostage, if you will. Families were split. It was a, a gutsy and bold move, and nobody could quite figure out how it was going to be resolved. And it wasn't. And so we get no. not in the 80s, but it was a, yeah. a Cold War, the symptom of the Cold War, and as a result, set the stage for numerous spy espionage stories to be set in Berlin as people would cross from one side to the other surreptitiously, illegally, um, sometimes with a pass uh, or a passport, but obviously in terms of espionage, they were, um, you know, in terms of the movie or the book that you're reading, they would always yeah. have inferior motive. Yeah. Some they were attempting to accomplish. Yeah. And I need to amend my, uh, my, my description. I misspoke. The, the guard that they attack when they cross over, he just knocks him out. It, I thought it looked like he was shooting him in the back. He just um, pistol whips him and knocks him out. So. The first soldiers who confront them as they come out of the lab and shoot the doctor in the back, they appear to be Russian in terms I of think they are. The, the outfit. Their speech is not translated, but they appear to be Russian because they're on the, in the east. And then when they get to Checkpoint Charlie or what will become Checkpoint Charlie to, to get to the other side. That appears to be an American or an ally. Mm -hmm. So and you're right. He gets clubbed. But I would have made that assumption that he was killed as well, uh, reading quickly. Well, because these guys are ruthless. They're, they're, they, I don't think they would, unless they just don't want to raise. They don't want any tracks. Right, right. The raise awareness of some getting shot so this guy can just, you know, 
they're and they're in a hurry. They're trying to get the doctor to a um, hospital. What does he call it? A uh, that's a German Kranke uh, House. Kranke House. Yeah. Kranke House. Oh, a hospital. Yeah, um, I, don't, I don't speak German, um, but that was thrown in for more flavor. I took three years, but I don't remember a lot of it. Yeah, uh, That was in high school. Uh, and then we then we open and we catch up, and Namor is is lying in a kind of a pool of uh, sludge, sewage, and sludge and garbage, and and uh, then first you think he's on the ground, and then you realize he's on top of a um, skyscraper or an office building, and that's when he he kind of get we get the little page of flashback of how he uh he was um he'd saved he discovered that sludge that was kind of absorbing people and keeping them in some kind of a cocoon and stasis within its body and he they speculated that it was feeding off their intelligence and it was growing more sentient and intelligent as it more people absorbed uh and then the doctors provided him with some kind of a anti um, virus or something. It was a, a, a gene scrambler. And when he releases it within the thing, it just explodes. And it's just, you get this cascade of sewage, just uh, it's all like a tidal wave, just it fl- it engulfs the city. And that's how he winds up on the building. Then this is one. Uh, and this is interesting. It burned decided to take away his, uh, ankle wings because he just jumps off and just plummets and he realizes that um, this is maybe the first time he refers to himself as a mutant he says the mutant attributes who gave me flight are gone and he's just plumbing to his death until he kind of does a spider-man and grabs a, a nearby flagpole and swings into a uh, located yeah. there must be a lot of them in New York City Although if you ever you read Spider-Man, they're all over the place. And uh, of course, I don't think office buildings in Manhattan open like this. You can't open a window like this guy just opens a window kind of. It's almost um, the 60s era Batman, you know, when they were walking it, when they were scale the side of a building and they always meet somebody opening the window and they'd have a, like a guest star coming on and they would talk to Batman and Robin. Yep. And he just swings in and he kind of. Uh, you know, the women are gawking at his little speedo and he he kind of constantly walks to the, uh, the, I do like the way he's portrayed as being very, not arrogant, but very confident, regal. Yes. Yeah. And he, and he goes into and just crosses his arms like, yeah, let him, let him stare at me. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm fine. Well, Lamar has always been portrayed as not very self-confident. I'm sorry, not 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 lacking in self-confidence. Oh, absolutely not. Um, you know, he he works his physique and he works his bearing to attract the women. Uh, this is is more emphasized under Burn than other locations. I don't think that they have ever played up. Um, his physique and the appeal of his physique as much as Vern is doing. But I have also noticed that, that Vern is at, I, at first I thought it was subtle, but now it's not so subtle. He's doing the same thing for Namorita in terms of uh, drawing her as 
I'll say a siren, but that's not quite true. Uh, a precocious teenager and one who um, there's more than a hint of sexuality there. Anyways, let's leave it at that for yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's 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 kind of what he did with She-Hulk, making her fit and attractive, but not. I don't think he really overly sexualizes her. Um, right. But definitely drawing it for the uh, the fanboys. If you want right. pinups, if you're looking for, yep. for that, you can find them. Yep. Uh, I did think that the. Oh, I just didn't realize that somebody does it the same. The, the cop or the the first responders of the firemen that find her, and they see right. her, re, you know, they see her erupting out of her her little cocoon. They mispronounce his name too. They say this uh, mariner's cousin, which is what uh, headhunter says later. Yeah. Um, and then then you know, neighbors quickly starts. They're all in these kind of look like egg-shaped cocoons, and she starts ripping them open and, and pulling people out, and that's when Namor shows up, and we get the... the, And I don't know if this is necessary, but we get the the backstory of the two scientists that created Sludge, basically lied about it because they couldn't... They could not create... They couldn't uh, create the artificial life they were trying to, and they ran out of money. So they concocted this scheme of, well, we'll just present something that looks like artificial life and that'll buy us more time. But then her CEO goes and says, no, no, look what we've done. So then they knew they had to cover the track. So that's when they come up with this idea of they lure a, um, a drug dependent person in with uh, promises of drugs. They call him an acid head in the book and they basically murder him. This, you know, this is uh, Anderson. They're, sh- they're distributing the head to make it look like a suicide, and then they trash the office. And the other doctor, actually, they don't see it, but she burns her face so that they knew that that would create more a sense of, um, you know, they wouldn't fake that. That's going to, like I said, gave credence to their story. Uh, and then that's it. We, we, you know, Namor is worried about uh, hepatitis, but the doctor seemed to think that, I don't know how he would know this, but he seemed to think that the, the, the mutation that had caused the creature to evolve itself has evolved into something less toxic. I still think you would need some, some kind of, you have to, anybody who came in contact with stuff would have to go to the hospital, I would think. Yeah. That is still raw sewage. And, then it, he kind of just, you know, he he seems to be concerned about the uh, the environment, but he just leaves it to the authorities. Like, oh, they can clean it up, they can rescue the rest of the uh, the people that were trapped inside Sledge, and, and they would let's, carry. In, let's, ca- let's count the number of people as well. As I recall from last <laughs> issue or last episode, um, it was an entire cruise ship full of yeah. people and the crew and the captain. And we're only seeing two or three people um, being recovered. Our main characters, Carrie, Club, uh, Namorita, and maybe this, no, that guy didn't come out of the, the cocoon. But we only see a handful. And right. yet, first responders are just saying, I don't think anybody survived out of this thing. 
And yet we have all of those people that have to be accounted for uh, ultimately. So to choose your choose your plot path here. Either there's been mass murder that's occurred or there hasn't, depending on how you want to read this. Well, right. And if you want to read it as the, the and the, they do reveal that the two scientists that Anderson and Sheridan lost their own lives. So they died in the, the sludge tidal wave. So I don't know if that's, that's supposed to be there. They paid their pittance for what they did. Um, yeah. You, you don't know if, if these people are falling, once sludge broke apart, then I would think some of these people in these cocoons might be falling hundreds of feet. So unless the cocoon has saved them somehow, cushioned them, yeah, many the of them are dead. That's how I read it. The cocoons have preserved the life right. and the genic has destroyed the host. But these capsules or these eggs or fluid filled sacs have survived. So I, I read this as everybody survived. So right. why did these two doctors not? I'm not well, convinced that they, well, they weren't they just escaped. They weren't in. That's true. They weren't in cocoons. They were they could have drowned. You know, right. Um, so we don't know how many people the people in cocoons might have lived, but we don't know how many people might have died just from that were not. They're just onlookers. They could have died from um, not dock workers and yeah. people in nope. the, uh, on, on a waterfront. And you know what this reminds me of? It's about ten years, eleven years too early, but I get a very distinct recovery after the fact. First responders vibe for nine eleven. Yeah. That's no was, way it could have been planned that way, but that's the no. vibe that, that I get looking at this in hindsight now. Well, that's why I, in my synopsis, I use the term because until 9 11, I don't, I wasn't conscious of that term. And now they use it all the time. First You're responders, correct. you know. Um, I'm kind of surprised to have found what was her name, the doctor and her, uh, her cohort. I don't recall their names, but I would not have been surprised to see Dr. Carolyn Sheridan and her co-conspirator show up again, either mutated into another form, another villain, or to see them return someplace down the line in the yeah. series that, yes, we weren't really dead, but instead, et cetera. Well, that would that sounds like a storyline that if somebody was coming along after Burn. Exactly. That they would pick up and go, hey, let's let's grab those characters. Let's do something with them. He's and very would, good about back. when he leaves the series, resetting the chessboard so that essentially <laughs> you've got the same character with the same attributes. And this this isn't exactly the same thing, but I see where this has been written to allow for a sequel in some fashion if a writer wanted to. Yeah, for himself, <laughs> if he wanted to, to bring it up. Right. Um. And then we get, um, get Caleb and Carrie, who I feel we've talked about this, that he doesn't know what to do with these two characters. He introduced them in the first issue. They were very important. It looked like Carrie was going to have a relationship with Namor. And then she immediately breaks it off because the, she's worried about her safety. And then she, they kind of write them out of the story. And then they're bringing him back, but they doesn't seem to know what to do with him because then Phoebe shows up and she's, you know, dressed to the nines. And that's when she says, oh, they, you know, they've captured Desmond. You've got to go help me. And 
Namorita is kind of Namor's. Um, he makes a comment about about how much knowledge she has of the surface world. Uh, that she's kind of his information dump for stuff. He doesn't. He's not paying attention to what's going on in the surface world. You know, he's concerned with his his underwater realm and all that. But she's up. You know, she's up to date. Like she's up to date on pop culture. So she's heard of this. Um, um, headhunter, uh, and that's when she notices that his ankle wings are gone. And I think she mentions in this issue that it had happened before. He had lost his ankle wings once before, and I don't remember what happened or how he got him back, and or who who the writer was that took him away. But that's coming up next issue, I believe. Yeah, I thought uh, there might have been something else here. The way that Byrne plays this scene where Yamarita recognizes, oh my goodness, he's missing something, without showing his ankles, all you see is Yamarita is looking at Namor as he walks right. away, because right. she's looking from behind. Again, I thought that was a blank slate that you could interpret something else. What, I don't know, but it was suggestive that there could have been another mutation of something coming here that she's reacting to. But it, it doesn't go that way. But I I thought this was set up that way very distinctly. Well, you think it would, and I don't, I don't remember. I've read ahead, but I do not remember having read these since the 90s. That it's like something Byrne might have done, that maybe that's the first step. He loses his wings. Then he slowly is mutating to either be more human or he's becoming he's becoming a, a non-mutant. So he would be a normal mortal man and how he would deal with that. And of course, in the at one point he would get his powers back. But that'd be an interesting exploration if someone had has always relied on his physical might to go through life. He's not had to you know, yeah, he can be scheming, but he's always <clears throat> relied on his flight, his strength, his power to uh, accomplish whatever he's trying to do. And if he was suddenly a mortal man, how would he deal with that? You know, would he give up Oracle? Would he uh, try to get him back? Would he run to Reed Richards and say, Reed, you got to help me. You know, you got to take me back to what I'm supposed to be. Um, and a name Marita we see later is we talked about how he got his wings in the first place, didn't we? <clears throat> I think you mentioned, but he's always had his he's always had his wings, right? Not quite. Um, for for all of Silver Age, yes, he's got his ankle wings, and that's how we recognize his um, the Submariner. But in the 1950s, there apparently was some sort of an experimentation on him uh, by the chief scientist he was put in basically a hyperbaric chamber for some reason he'd been injured and through the miracles of electricity underwater um, in other words it wasn't thought out very well they shock him and he emerges stronger than ever and look he's got wings now so um you know okay so he was he was a mutant and now he was experimented on and he got additional uh, powers or strength and wings to boot. That was someplace in the 1950s. And as far as I'm concerned, 
I can overlook those those appearances completely, except that that's where the wings came in. But wasn't he? Didn't he fly when Everett created him in the Golden Age? Uh, he was fighting the Nazis. I, I've never read those issues, so I'm not familiar with it. Um, to me, they always kind of hearken to kind of uh, Mercury, you know, yes. the winged uh, space the, god. He, yeah, he was kind of summoned. So yeah, uh, and then we get, you know, she's and <clears throat> you have to say at this point, you're not really sure if Phoebe is still playing a part or if she's genuinely concerned about her brother and still making a play for Namor because I think it's he, some of both. it is right. And we know that they are that in the issues leading up to this, that her brother had instructed her to go and try to create, you know, start a relationship with Namor because he wanted Namor in their power. And so we don't know again, if he's still and name and Namor is written a little, not naive, but a little trusting of women. You know, she gives him a, a very deep kiss in the car because uh, he says that he uh, he swears that he will, you know, he sees her as kind of a damsel in distress and he swears, I will, I will take care of this. And then she gives him a big, big kiss. Uh, and that's when we cut to, uh, again, Byrne is, Sprinkling in future stories starting here with Misty Knight and Colin Wing, who I think at this time are still detectives. No, Misty Knight's a detective, I think. Um, Colin Wing is a detective, but they're characters from the Luke Cage book and Iron Man or Iron Fist. And at this point, Iron Fist is believed to be dead, having been killed by Luke Cage. And their final issue of their book, 125. Pummeled about, to death. Yeah. Pummeled to, uh, to, to uh, slot. Yeah, which wouldn't take much from... And I, I'm not going to spoil it, but I read back on the story of that, and it's very interesting about what's really going on there. Um, and so Misty Knight is, I guess, been brooding and drinking because she's... Um, she can't get back. She can't get back to work, you know, and basically Colin saying, you got to snap out of it. And that's when the news, the news comes on and says, Hey, Danny Rand is back. He's been hiding out. He's not dead. And he's ready to take over the, as head of, uh, Rant Meacham, which is his corporation. Then it cut. That's it. So we were, you know, he's sprinkling that little bit in kind of giving you a taste. And then we move on to our story of, and I, I thought it was a nice touch of Namorita. Carrie is very focused on she's either jealous or she's very concerned about Namor. And nobody else seems to see a problem with Phoebe kind of throwing herself at at Namor, but she sees it as yeah, she may be jealous, but she thinks there's something more nefarious going on. Her father seems to think like, what what's the what's the problem? You know, I don't see a problem there. And Namorita, being a teen, is very concerned about her own wings. Throughout this whole, all these um, pages, she is focused on looking at her ankle wings, 
you see her flying around, testing them, and she's very and she mentions it. She's very concerned that if she's going to lose her wings, she could lose her ankle wings too. Um, and that seems to bother her. You know, they I guess they are very much a part of who you know who she is. So I thought that was a nice touch that as a you know as a teen she might be kind of self engrossed in her own problems, and she too doesn't think that there's a problem with Phoebe making a play for her cousin. You know, she says Namor's a big boy. He knows what he's doing. Um, but I thought it was interesting that, uh, uh, what does Carrie say about him? That he is, um, he's not known to, uh, I guess, use his head when he's going into relationships. That he would be easily kind of swayed by the this attractive woman that's coming on to him. And he wouldn't necessarily see anything wrong with what she's doing or he wouldn't he would take her face value he wouldn't think that she's trying to uh manipulate or deceive him and that's what she's worried about right um there is the reference of yes he's lost his wings once before which i figure out where when that happened um i've tried to do some research and i can't come up with that so if anybody out there is familiar with what they're referencing here uh, I'd like to know because I I just don't know when that happened. Although I do know another instance when he was experimented on and they uh, they messed around with his gills, but that's another story and that happened in the uh, 1968 Submariner series. Um, so where do we stand here? Well, it's the cliffhanger. You know, uh, he shows up kind of ready to be Prince Charming and thinks that it, it's a, I thought it was a nice touch where he grabs her like he's going to fly up there and he realizes, oh, I can't do that. Um, it's as far as I have it. Uh, and then they, um, then they head to yep. uh, the private elevator and, and, uh, and that's where you see that this is the part I think that maybe she is really starting to fall for him. I don't think this is an act that he's, um, He's so he's so confident, um, so sure of himself. Except when he tried to fly and he couldn't, she said he felt a little embarrassed, like a little boy. Um, and that's a nice that's a nice that bottom panel right where you see Namer kind of looking up. He looks very regal and stern. Uh, that's a nice drawing that where she's kind of in the background looking at him, kind of um, you know seeing the the vulnerable spot of who he is. And that's a nice. Um, now, this is the last, <clears throat> we talked about the dual shade that Byrne has used throughout the last couple issues, especially for some of the underwater scenes. And this is the last issue. I think he uh, abandons it. Uh, so the next issue, we don't have any dual shade, which is a shame because it really, especially the underwater scenes, it really um, created a sense of being underwater. Um, and then we're introduced to uh, Headhunter. She shows up. Um in a much different outfit than she had in the cover. And that's when <clears throat> he, uh, she purposely mispronounces his name and explains she did that on purpose because he corrects her. You know, she calls him the submariner and he says it's submariner. And she says, that's, um, now I know something about you. I know it bothers you. 
you still don't know anything about me. So that gives me an edge. Uh, so she tends to express everything in kind of terms of business. Right. And business, negotiations, acquisitions. <clears throat> yep. Yep. She's always kind of, she's always playing uh, the, the, the other person or, or playing, yeah, playing the, playing an angle to try to get um, leverage on someone. And then she explained, and, and I think we talked about this. They burned his writing here with like, um, I don't know if it's kind of a Southern accent, but she calls, um, she'll call people sugar. And the way he's got her writing it, it seems like she's got kind of a <clears throat> exaggerated Southern accent. So I don't know where she's supposed to be with. Um, and she basically explains that her deal is perfectly legal. Can't do anything about it. You know, and then she opens the door and we see the heads on a wall <clears throat> and we see Desmond. Um, and the heads are arranged much different than they were on the cover. And they're arranged a little different than we see him again in the next issue. So he's kind of played around with their movement a little bit. People have moved around. Their colors are different. Um, and then Phoebe kind of recoils in horror and Namor is shocked. And that's it. We, we, we stopped there. So that was a nice, that would have been a nice cliffhanger when you're reading this. It was a dramatic cliffhanger, as I recall. Um, and, you know, you would not think that there would be any way back from this, uh, that it's a done deal, that it's too late, that, you know, you take this for what, what it's presented to be. And I was, you know, half of the mind that, that uh, Headhunter may have been originally posited as a 1930s vampire. In fact, it occurred to me as I got this issue off the, the spinner rack uh, back in the day that maybe she was the the um, the body that was wrapped like uh, Bride of Frankenstein. That we were going to discover that that's who was. That makes sense. That would have made sense. But that's not where it went. And and again, that's it's needless speculation. But that's that's one thing that it had crossed my mind. And I thought that Desmond. And all these heads were going to be a function of Vlad the Impaler, you know, right. that, that these are our bodies that she had drained. But it didn't go that way. Well, and I think it, I'm sure Byrne is calling her obviously a headhunter because she's got these heads on the wall. Yeah. But as a play on a corporate headhunter, someone yeah. who you know, finds you a job. Yeah. Which I think is that's not what she does. So she's not really a headhunter in that respect. Right. But, but, because that's business and that, and I guess, I mean, I would think that she would be, uh, it would give her some other kind of name, but yeah, it's, um, it's a comic book, not trope, but it, and no. a play on words. Obviously she's ruthless business <clears throat> principles taken to the extreme mm -hmm. as are many of the people in this series, Desmond, a uh, doctor, whatever her name was. Um, a lot of people seem to have no scruples. They're all about business at any cost, including murdering an acid head. Yep. I was expecting that person was going to be revealed not to have been, you know, just a nameless person. But in fact, that was going to turn out to be somebody significant that they uh, didn't, that they miscalculated, that they didn't even take into account that person was important or significant. I think it was back. You know, that's written that these, they were desperate to, uh, 
cover their tracks and they just saw this homeless person or whatever the situation was as just um, a disposable prop. They needed something. They needed, you know, so they didn't think anything about his life. Um, Because Namor says that when he's talking about sludge and he does, they don't really hint up. They kind of touch on this and then move right on about, you know, did it have, it seemed like it was sentient because it actually spoke in the other issue before it died. Did it have a right to live? It didn't ask what, it's kind of, it was kind of like Frankenstein. It didn't ask what happened to it. It wasn't really responsible. Did it have a, a, a right to, to exist like everybody else? And he, he says, uh, back it up as one more victim of the sometimes senseless march of human science. Meaning, you know, or you could put greed in there as well. Because a lot of this book, because he, uh, Byrne is delving into the kind of the corporate world when Namor decided to take over Oracle and be more of a businessman that we're dealing with um, the ruthlessness, as you said, of um, the very rich. You know, the Mars twins are Desmond will do. You know, we're introduced to him. He's ready to commit suicide just because there's no more challenges. He's achieved everything <clears throat> he wanted to achieve and he's re- ready to put a bullet in his head and his sister stops him. And that's what you know, then suddenly he gets fixated on Namor, and that kind of what saves him. So you get a lot of that. You know, the headhunter, she's she's mysterious, but she's doing everything for money. Um, the scientist, all they were worried about was money and their, um, I'm assuming their uh, their reputation, um, and even the uh, the Rand Corporation. You know, we're dealing a lot with. We're not doing a lot with superhero stuff here. We're doing a lot of kind of business stuff. Right. Um, so is, are we, is that finish that's up? That's it. Here? That's it. I think uh, we're ready to, for you to take us into issue nine and let us know what, uh, how Namor is going to get out of this. Well, we'll see. Uh, Tim, I know you're suffering from a cold and you've been coughing <clears> here a bit, so you can uh, rest that voice because I've got the summer right. for number All right. nine. Um, and I don't have it printed out in front of me, but I do have it called up on my screen. So we'll start now. Name or number nine is titled Head Games, or as you pointed out, inside the story is titled Skull Orchard. And that was also used as the teaser at the end of eight that they use the expression Skull Orchard. Mm-hmm. as well. The cover, um, I should also mention, is the first one that no longer uses the masthead. Uh, Marvel's first and mightiest mutant. That's gone now. All we have is Namor the Submariner at the top of uh, what is a tight shot of two heads, a blank stare on Namor's face with reddish pupils, and a ginger-colored character, which is obviously Headhunter, with razor blades on her fingertips about to slash Namor's throat. This is Headhunter, a foreplay on the 90s term for a ruthless business acquisition management. Uh, Words and Pictures by John Byrne, color by Glynis Oliver, editing by Terry Cavanaugh, editor-in-chief Tom DeFalco, and Submariner by Bill Everett. At least that's the credits inside. The first page is a slow zoom into the penthouse office floor of a Manhattan skyscraper, where on the second page, we actually begin the action. Namor and Phoebe Mars confront a wall of mounted heads inside the pink and scarlet shaded office of Ed Hunter, 
a female albino. In the dead center of those mounted heads is Desmond Marr's head, and Phoebe has collapsed to the floor in shock and grief. Desmond seems transfixed. Namor is shocked, but Phoebe attempts to cut off the discussion of Headhunter's help with the Mars little inheritance problem. Uh, obviously, she did something that they're not particularly proud of or don't want to have revealed. Headhunter leads them around the side of the wall and shows how the heads are being maintained through an elaborate ICU setup, each on a separate system. Namor tells Phoebe to summon the authorities at once, but Headhunter laughs as she removes her dark aviator sunglasses to reveal her red pupils and a special power. Possibly a mutant hypnosis, we'll discover. We cut to Oracle Incorporated, where Namorita, Caleb, and Cassie are sitting around discussing Cassie's possible jealousy of Phoebe Mars, Namor's possible new love interest. Nina agrees to go fly over and just check on him and thinks about how this is most risky as she was exposed to the same mutagenic virus that destroyed Sludge last issue and took Namor's wings last issue as well. She hovers over Headhunter's penthouse, unseen in the overcast gloom of night, and listens into Headhunter's lecturing her subordinates as she replaces her glasses again. The camera reverses as she boasts that she has now access to all the ocean's riches and reveals Namor's head mounted on the wall as she says all she has to do is ask. Cut to an L.A. boardwalk, possibly of um, Venice Beach, where Jim Hammond is walking with Anne Raymond, widow of the late Toro. They reference action from Avengers West Coast number 50 and 51, when Jim Hammond, the original Human Torch android, was revived after sleeping in Toro's grave. Suddenly, they are accosted by a black leather-clad skinhead German whom the Torch disarms, but loses track of Anne, who is grabbed and held hostage by a large Aryan muscle man in black leather that, that he recognizes as Master Man, a character from the Invaders World War II era book. Torch is subdued by a shock helmet of some design, and then both are kidnapped without anyone from the public intervening. They escape in a black limousine with their hostages, as Master Man says, to keep the girl alive as leverage over the torch. Obviously, this is setting up another storyline that's coming down the road. Right. Meanwhile, Dina is tired of hovering upside down outside Headhunter's penthouse and decides to crash in through the louvered skylight. Headhunter is thrilled to have access to another Atlantean for what she calls a matched set. Her bald ginger bodyguard pulls a machine gun Uzi on Nina, who is hovering in front of him. And although she dodges the initial onslaught, he fires point blank at her chest, much to the shock of Headhunter, who warns Mr. Stocks to be careful about harming her collection of heads. Nina clutches her severed top to her bosom and queries why Headhunter is concerned about harming severed head as Headhunter removes her glasses a second time to bewitch Nina. But nothing happens. Nina taunts her, and an off-panel Namor chides her that she's operating from an incorrect premise. The Namor head is talking. Headhunter objects, saying none of the heads can speak unless spoken to. 
At that point, Namor's fists break through the wall below his head, and he charges out of the false wall, breaking the illusion. Nina is delighted as he turns and rakes back the wall, revealing the other dozen or so heads are still attached to bodies that have been laid flat on Guernsey's. Uh, our gurneys, rather. Headhunter makes a break for it as she shoves Nina, still clutching her bosom very modestly, as she shoves her into Namor. Namor takes out Mr. Stocks and then turns to the escaping helicopter off the rooftop pad. He may not be able to fly, but he leaps and grabs the tail rotor fin, unstabilizing the craft. Headhunter is piloting it when suddenly the craft explodes dropping both Namor and the fuselage of the helicopter straight down into the river. No one surfaces as the ripples slow and calm. We cut to the penthouse as the cops are taking stocks away, and Namor and Nina quiz the various hostage heads as they are revived. They'd all entered into nefarious contracts with Headhunter to resolve complicated or embarrassing situations and have believed their heads were at stake. Namor reveals the magician's illusion was a 45-degree mirror reflecting the ICU apparatus as if it was behind the wall, which actually was hiding their bodies. It's clever, but ultimately a pointless illusion. Cut to his confrontation of Phoebe back at Mars Towers. The expositional news network explains that Headhunter is missing, presumed dead. Again, another... (coughs) Uh, loose thread that perhaps another writer might pick up and bring back in a comic book trope. Phoebe rushes to Namor now that he's safe, but he rebuffs her, asking how he could have thought of a romantic relationship with her when she was just playing him as a bargaining chip. Desmond enters, disoriented, in a dressing robe, and confronts Phoebe, rebuking her that he had an agreement with Head Hunter and would gladly have honored his contract. But now she had messed it all up. Namor completely misunderstands who his friends are and reveals admiration for Nesmond as a man of honor and principle when Phoebe is once again cast aside, a bargaining chip in Desmond's bid to draw Namor under his influence. The final splash shows Namor offering his hand in friendship to Desmond, who is draped in a black dressing gown, as a symbolic astral figurehead of Desmond laughs in the background, laughs in delight that Namor has been so thoroughly hoodwinked. Next issue, Dark Nativity, which continues our darkening theme in the series and uh, tying up the foreshadowing in the tale of Master Man and Warrior Woman that leads to a reunion of the invaders in the next three issues. Now, we've already covered this. Next issue for us will be issue 13 called Reap the Whirlwind, which is one of my favorite single issues as Namor's past and mercurial nature catches up to him in a court of law. But Tim, do you have an announcement about those three issues, 10, 11, and 12? <clears throat> Wait, yes. As uh, we are not, Kirk and I are not going to, we've already covered those with uh, the rest of the team. So we are not going to, Kirk and I are not going to re-record those. We will just release, re-release those with some new artwork um, to coincide. So it'll fit in with this series we're doing. So when you, for those three issues, you will hear the the whole group talking about those, not just Kirk and I. Then Kirk and I will return with issue 13 and pick up 
um, where we left off. And I haven't read that far ahead, so I can't remember. I know kind of what's coming with certain plot points that he's sprinkled in, but I don't remember exactly how everything plays out. <clears throat> so I'll have to, to read ahead on that. But uh, I have to ask, what did you think of this? And I remember this when I read this when off the rack. What did you think of the wrapping up of the Headhunter story? Well, um, as I kind of hinted in, my, in the summary here, it's a clever illusion, but somewhat pointless. Uh, why exactly would she do this? I mean, it's a it's an obvious gotcha to the audience that, aha, you know, John Bird has distracted you at the end of the first issue with a cliffhanger and made you think there was no way back and then reveals, no, they're not really heads. They are, they've been held in stasis. Okay. To what he, point? Yeah, he's he's kind of played the same trick that he that Namor explains in this elaborate explanation of how the mirror trick works. And Byrne seems like very clever. It's like, look what I've done. Check it yeah. out. Um and I, I felt the same way. I thought it was weak, and I thought, this is it, really. We've been kind of teasing her for eight issues, and this is what we get. Um and again. Namer kind of explains that she did it because she had a uh, kind of a heightened sense of showmanship and she needed to and there, then he asked about the mirror I was like well, why is that? He goes well she needed to show her the new victims I guess look I really am cutting people's heads off and keeping them alive with this elaborate contraption but we don't reveal that she does that because she immediately tries to uh, hypnotize Namor as soon as he walks in the room. So he doesn't show, she doesn't show Namor the back end of all these people. She, so they don't, I don't get the sense that anybody of them, any of her victims saw that. So that it's either for her, her workers, like the Mr. Stock, the ticker, um, those folks, if it's for them, but I would think that they're in on the, they know that she, I guess, has this, hypnosis power that and that's that's for them to or i don't know the whole thing seems it super elaborate I, and yeah. unnecessary yes it, it isn't necessary it's a play on the name and it's a stunt but it doesn't seem to be necessary for the story um, no. i think you're right and i hadn't caught the fact that that namor never was shown um well, wait a minute. Yes, she does show him. Let me flip back here. I want to make sure that I've got it. Last oh. issue. No, she, she shows yeah. the head from the front. And then this issue, uh, he sees it from the head. And then she shows from the side, she shows Namor and Phoebe. The, um, okay, the, she does. The, okay, that's my mistake. She does show them... Uh, yeah, yeah, in this issue, she yeah, shows them the point. What it, you know, it, it's still it's it's elaborate and it doesn't seem to really have a purpose. So, I, I'm just going to chalk it off to you know, as Byrne was jotting down ideas, you know, some were were um, conservation and nature minded and ecology minded, and some were business uh, themes and and ruthlessness. And I think this is just this is that side of the equation that he had an idea and he ran with. 
Now, whether an editor helped him shape it or changed it or modified it, I don't know. But I just, I just excuse this as a one-note joke that uh, that dealt with the aggressiveness of business, the lack of morals, and we're going to move on after this. Yeah, That's I don't know. I don't know if he, he, he when he created Headhunter, if he knew where he was going to go with her, go with her, either he mind or ran out of ideas or decided to just pivot and kind of get her out you know we get her out of the of the story right away um does she and i I didn't i didn't this never occurred to me until i was reading just now does she remind you a little bit of arcade the way she's very showy very over the top very uh theatrical good point Um, good connection that's yeah That's possible, and maybe there was going to be a connection. Certainly, she's a you know she's a ginger, if you'll forgive the expression. I don't know if that's insulting or not, but she's a redhead, and she plays games. She's business oriented, and and I think it's entirely possible that that Burn down the road was leaving his options open if he ever wanted to come back and revisit this. I also think it's entirely possible that she was never in that helicopter. That in fact, it was another sleight of hand. Yeah, she's not. Always yeah, she's not dead. She rushes out of the room, and we cut to Namor leaping off the the, uh, the rooftop to grab the helicopter. We never saw the never connected the dots, although your mind does it, that she's actually gotten into that helicopter. This may have been a ruse. It may have been a false distraction. That while the helicopter takes off, she's running down the steps to escape, you know, in the yeah. sub basement or something. So it's there are. A number of comic book tropes that could have come into play. It's it's very Mission Impossible. It's like we're yeah. showing you what we want you to see. The same with the heads and the wall. I can and see that as Mission Impossible. She is a master of illusion, and that's just been demonstrated to us. So um, I, I think this was possibly the opening of a three-act play, um, and that there were there at least is the potential for a second or maybe a third act as well down the road as Byrne would want to bring the character back as we moved him. It doesn't happen, but I, I see that in all, in most of his writing in this series, there's always a loose, not a loose end, but an opportunity where, okay, that's the scene where they could come back again in the silver, in the early silver age in Marvel. There was always a flashback when they brought back the Mad Thinker or the Red Ghost yeah. or something or Dr. Doom explaining how he got out of the death trap from the prior experience. Oh, he wasn't really killed. He instead escaped by doing this. And I, I think Byrne is very, very much of that age and believes that that's how comic books should be written. Well, it harkens back to... Uh the serials of the 40s and 50s, you know, it's always, uh, yeah. no, it's he wasn't on that car as it went over the cliff. You know, he jumped out at the last minute. So yes. That, that kind of thing. But uh, the other thing I thought was a little unclear is what she did. She the, the One of the, the heads explains that, you know, she made this deal with Headhunter and then he came to call and then I guess they, they fake person retiring and that's explains their disappearance from public and i don't know if she was she had all these business people 
on this wall and she had access to them. So was she asking them for business advice or was she using them to some kind of a hive mind to come up with business plan? I didn't know how she was utilizing these people for her own uh, wealth. Yeah, we're, we're, it's a comic book. We have to kind yeah. of accept it at some point that she right. was benefiting in some manner. Uh, but yeah. you are absolutely right. These are questions and underlying puzzles that are not explained that makes us wonder. And that well, gives us an uncomfortable feeling about this particular um, episode, if you will. Yeah. Well, the... I, I wanted to bring this up because it, it remi- when I was reading this, it reminded me of something similar. And Byrne pulled this same trick, as not as elaborate, at, the year before in She-Hulk, number two and three. Because in those issues, she runs into the headsmen, which are a yes. group of, uh, I guess, sci- scientists or whatever. One of them, um, one of them has the like his head's been transplanted onto a gorilla body. Another guy is, uh, has a body of like a demon or something. Anyway, they kidnap Jennifer Walters. And what you think is they cut her head off and are going to use her body and attach it to this other scientist who has this kind of demon body. So you see her as just a head in a, in a alcove in a wall and Spider-Man guest stars, and it's not revealed the way it is here, where she's not really, you know, she can't, she talks about she can't feel the rest of her body. So that he's done something similar to deaden her body or something. And in true She-Hulk fashion, she just tells the audience, hey, we'll just read this that I escaped from it. I'm not going to show it. And you just see her next thing, you see her escape and swinging through the air with Spider-Man. But it's the same thing. You know, she is... Not didn't have her head cut off. Uh, the body was a clone body that was uh, not her own body. It was a different one. So I thought just a year prior, he had kind of done the same thing. I had wondered when they, they mentioned Headhunter, I wondered if this gal was going to be introduced as one of that, one of that group. Um, good catch. Uh, you are absolutely right. Well, I knew it sounded familiar, uh, the, the She-Hulk thing. Um, and that's why I, when I, because I remember reading this off the rack, there was not, I wasn't really happy with the way it wrapped up. I thought, uh, one, I thought it was out of character for Namor to kind of play along. He never seems to be subtle about anything. I think that if he once he would do what Namorita did. Once he realized that his Atlantean eyes are immune to her hypnotic gaze, that he would not play along because if Namorania hadn't shown up, how long would he be in that wall? You know, before he, you know, confessed to what she was doing. So, right. Well, it's also possible that he was just playing along, uh, being devil's advocate here, just to listen and have her, have the villain reveal their plans as they always tend to explain them to the henchmen. Um, but I agree with you. It, it, It isn't quite like Namor. To, to suckers to, to play along like that, but the whole point was to trick the viewer, right? Yeah, and that's what that's what I feel is gimmicky to me, and it's kind of like Burns better than this. Don't I mean he probably had a lot of fun doing it, 
especially the explanation of how the you know how you could do it it's, this feels more like he thought up the gag and then wrote a story around it yes um, exactly yeah this is a story structured around the term headhunter yeah. and it does lead into and I, I can't tell if Desmond saw this as an opportunity to really gain control over Namor because it seemed like he didn't want to go with Headhunter. But maybe after he was released, he thought, oh, I can play this to my advantage and I will basically put all the blame on. He throws Phoebe under the bus and tells Namor, oh, well, hey, we're responsible. We'll take whatever action, you know, if you want to call the authorities, whatever you want to do. And that's when Namor is kind of tricked into like, oh, no, you're an honorable man. You know, I would be he says I would be proud to call you a friend. And that's when, to your point, you see, you know, Desmond is shaking his hand. But in the background, you know, he is thinking, yes, now I'm really getting you in my clutches. Um, and I don't want to spoil things, but I think I don't think the Mars twins last much longer in this series because we're going into the, you know, this three part kind of. Uh, invaders reunion that's coming up and then we go ahead i think headlong into uh some of the other stories that he's kind of planting bringing yes. back characters and things like that well you pointed out there there haven't been a lot of superheroes or super heroics in the series so far although we've seen the ff we've seen iron man uh there have been a couple of references we see name arita um there have been a couple of references that were, that were in the Marvel Universe, but they haven't been superhero stories. That's going to shift gears as quickly right. as the yep. next trilogy. And then as we get to 13 and the next maybe four or five issues as well, we're going to start incorporating uh, Colin Wing and uh, Misty Knight. And I'm not real familiar with that pantheon or that storyline at all, except that it's critical to the development of Namor storyline that's developed here. And so I went along for the ride, but he tells you what you need to know, but I yeah. almost have the feeling that, that somebody in management, an editor or editor in chief or somebody leaned on him and said, um, you know, this isn't quite going as well as we thought. You think you could incorporate some more superheroes? And I can hear him just saying, hang on, hang on. I've got all the elements. Yeah. In place now. It's, it going. Yeah. It's, it's coming. Um, and so I, I definitely see a shift as of the first year, which ends roughly with issue 12, uh, a, sh a shift in direction and tone into the next year. Um, and I think right. in some ways right. I like the second year better, maybe because now we have all the, the characters introduced and the relationships in place and it, it's more, more familiar Marvel characters in history instead of being created out of whole cloth each issue or each arc now we're we're picking up threads that had existed or that he wanted to tell for whatever reason i don't know maybe brian will be able to share some backstory for us about how this series evolved he seems to be good at doing that research but uh, i yeah. wonder at this point well he's playing a lot with stuff he's created you know he He's tying in because he had brought back the Human Torch when he was doing West Coast Avengers. So now we've got that character back here. Uh, he was instrumental in the uh, early days of Iron Fist, which introduced Missy Knight and Conlon Wing. So he's kind of bringing them in. 
Um, the Invader stuff, I don't know if that's just a love for the Invaders. That's why he brought those storylines in. Um, I know at the same time he's doing Namor, he's writing Iron Man. And at one point, Desmond Mars crosses into and has dealings with Tony Stark. So I don't know if that's something we probably won't cover that, but we may just mention it because it does kind of tie in with this book a little bit. Um, so, and I kind of wish to your point of him getting back to more of a superhero, probably more, not even more uh, like the sixties series anymore. Cause that dealt with him much more of him ruling um, Atlantis. And he was dealing with, uh, is it a Tuma or um, the guy that's always been trying to uh, absorb his throne? But he was dealing much more with Atlantean problems. And here, I thought it had a lot of promise of him coming on and being the Lex Luthor type. He was wearing a suit. He was running Oracle. He was going to kind of change his tactics and try to get into, you know, kind of, he said, beat, beat uh, surface dwellers at their own game using money. And that seemed to have kind of slipped away so that he's now just, he's in his trunks all the time. You know, he's just back to Speedo wearing Submariner. So I kind of wish he would, especially with him have lost his wings. Maybe he goes back to more of the running the company and dealing with that. So that, I think that doesn't happen and it, and it becomes more um, Sanders superhero fair, which I like. I do. I don't remember this second year i do know the of things coming in and he kind of uh wraps up some threads some other storylines and retcons a few things and things like that but that's that's standard superhero stuff i hadn't noticed that he was uh, no longer in his business suit that's a good observation he's not uh, yeah he's just kind of um and the when we, we mentioned this that the the first issue where he has to have his, where he learns about his blood disorder or imbalance. And that was explaining his um, periods of uh, being manic or taking over, trying to take over the world as to he spends too much time in the air or the water and his blood gets imbalanced and he kind of goes crazy. That has just been gone. We have not addressed that at all. So it's either, He's just dealing with that in the background now, and he doesn't have to worry about it, or it's not worth. But I thought that was something that could have been worth exploring at least a little bit. You know, oh, I, maybe. I think it will when we get to issue thirteen. It's at least a plot, uh, a minor plot point that gets reintroduced, and um, peeling back the curtain and looking ahead into the invaders arc, uh, there is some extreme torture that's going to go right. on. We've already covered, so I, yeah. you know, it's. What it's a thirty-year-old comic book, so I don't feel bad spoiling it. But no. uh, there's some extreme torture of Namor, where he's going to hallucinate and go, um, you know, and, and go bonkers a bit. And that there's no real lasting after effects of that that I recall. But um, these, I think they they're still playing with the idea of this lack of water throws him off balance. Um, you know, if you, they don't want to do it every issue, but I think that's still in the background and that's still going to come up. Occasionally we'll see uh, Carrie or, or Caleb or Caleb, whatever, however you pronounce his name, 
they'll be introduced, but they're not major characters. They were um, they were the the resolution to that. What I think Burns saw as a critical need to explain Namor's mood swings, and frankly. I have recognized those swings. They've been commented on for years in the letters pages, and uh, it, it makes perfect sense to me. I like it. It's a great explanation that solves a problem, and then we don't have to deal with it anymore because it's been addressed. Well, at least that's True. Yeah. It, well, yeah. Right. If you if you you know it's if you want to turn, uh, it's the same with Magneto, except there's no explanation for Magneto that. If you want someone to be an anti-hero and be more working on the side of good, then how do you explain that? In Magneto, there is no explanation. He he, he flip-flops from being mass murderer to, uh, you know, leading the X-Men constantly. So I, I don't want to get into that one because yeah. I don't I can't <laughs> keep it straight how many clones of Magneto we've seen. That's, that's true. Which alternate reality is like, right. please. Right. At least with Namor, it's the same. We're dealing with the same individual, but as far uh, as we know, gotcha. as far as we know, that's true. True that every, everything, if anything, from reading comics, we found out that anything can be retconned. Yeah, and will back. be, and will be right because every writer wants to kind of put their spin on it. No, I, uh, any final thoughts his, on uh, this one? He's lost his wings at this point, but I don't recall how he gets them back. But I have an idea. I think I know how that's done. But that's that's in the second year of the series. That you know, ultimately, we will get all the the chess pieces put back in place for the next writer, or to some degree, they'll all be back in place. But uh, I'm looking forward to that. I was I was wondering how they were going to deal with that because it seems like such an extreme move to uh, to remove his wings, and I'm I'm still not quite sure why Byrne did that. But it was very engaging. It's like, hey, he had me buying the next issue and the next issue. I was here for the ride and enjoying it very much. It's just this issue left me a little bit unsatisfied. Between the dark print and the dark imagery and the nighttime scenes, you know, I was a little put off at this point, but I was still there for the continued ride. So. Well, yeah, we really haven't commented on the art. Some of the art is a little muddy in this. Uh, like I said, he's he's done away with the duo shade, so there's no there's none of that. Uh, the opening, the front cover looks like it's got it, or it's got some zipatone, but it, it looks it's a nice um, close up of Namor. the The opening shots of New York look very almost Klaus Jensen to me. They look very scratchy and heavily inked. Um, reference. Yeah, it's reference. It's either a photo reference, but it doesn't look like Burns' usual work. He does a, especially the clouds. The clouds look very, uh, so like I said, look very scratchy and done with a with a heavy brush or something. And Burns is usually much cleaner. So, and then but then once we get into the 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 story proper, it's fine. But all the outside scenes where it's supposed to be kind of dark and stormy. Uh, leave a little bit to your point. It is dark, um, and then of course inside Headhunter's quarters, it's supposed to be um, a, a kind of a dark red light. So we're we're getting a lot of. Um, but he does. I've noticed that he changes her hair. In this one, her hair looks white. 
in the previous issue, her hair was red. And I can't tell sometimes if it's red from white hair absorbing the red coloring, the light, or if she actually has red hair. Because it seems like all of her cohorts have either are redheads or they've got red dyed hair. I can't tell. Um, Good point. I didn't catch that. You're right. Her hair is, is white. white. Through, through white through most all of this, yeah. except for yeah. the color. Uh, well, that may be a coloring issue in, in terms of somebody else, but uh, maybe they got a letter of protest by the Redhead League. I don't know. I don't <laughs> Maybe. The, I mean, uh, um, protested the Mars Twins as being um, at least orange hair. I don't yeah. know about Scarlet, but... I think they're supposed to be... Because the... The redheads of uh, her workers seem to be a little, little exaggerated. The the Mars twins probably are kind of a strawberry blonde, um, kind of a reddish. You know, again, he looks like David Bowie, so I think that's kind of the the color they're looking for. But yeah, um, yeah, I mean, it, it it wraps stuff up. I thought unsuccessfully, and thought maybe Headhunter was a little over the top. Uh, I know she comes back at one point because we find out she does have a name. But really? I don't know when she... I don't remember her coming back in this. I don't um, ever seeing her again. She may not, but her name is... They've given her name of Helen O'Hara. Okay. And that was gonna, Yeah, she comes back. Let me see. Let me... Um, Um, she has something to do with the X-Men. She's hired by the Purple Man. Um, she doesn't seem like she comes, she pops back up a little bit, but she does not seem to, um, um, have much in a way of, uh, impact on the Marvel universe. She does show up again, but she doesn't seem to do much. So, well, I have no memory of that. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so in the tape, uh, ten seconds here, folks. Uh, you you didn't hear that. She she died in the helicopter. <laughs> Anything else on the artwork? I don't have much more to share here. No, it's it's uh, other than being kind of dark and a little. Some of the inking of the the, the city scenes are a little muddy. Uh, the artwork is is his. You know, standard John Byrne fare. I mean, I, I do miss the duo shade because I thought that felt a real sense of depth to uh, the artwork he was doing. But, yeah, I hadn't caught that the zip tone was gone. But yeah. you're right. You are and, I don't, and I don't know if that's an expense or if it's, I think it takes longer to do that that process. So maybe that's why he dropped it. Maybe he was under deadlines. But um no, it's it's kind of it's. The, I thought the sludge story was was interesting, and then we get this kind of a lot. I thought really lackluster uh, wrap up to Headhunter, um, but it kind of gets her. It really kind of gets her off the playing field, and we get to move forward with what's the next three issues are really good. We've covered those, and they it's a really strong story, um, some good artwork, and then going into the stories that are coming up, we get more. Peter said more superhero stuff. So uh, if, if he and I can do anything else with her, then, you know, remove her and get rid of her. 
and let's move on to somebody else. So I think he may have run out of ideas for her. And that's why she exited as soon as she did and never came back, you know? So no, that's it. I think that was a good, it was a, it's got a good cover. Um, kind of a, again, a, a weak story, uh, average art for him, but it was enjoyable. It was kind of fun to read, but that was it. Cause it was kind of a gimmick story. Well, these were collected in the trade paperback called the Neymar Visionaries, Volume 1, up through the issue that we've just completed. And then the second trade paperback, which would be Volume 2, reprints issues numbers 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, and stops at that point. And so Byrne stays on through issue 25, as I recall. So it, it would appear that roughly these collections are eight to nine issues apiece. Some of these are double-sized issues. Only the first two volumes saw print. The last third never have been reprinted. And I think that tells you two things. One, either there wasn't the demand, or two, there wasn't the demand. There wasn't the interest. Right. Um, so if you're looking for this series, yeah, you can pick up these trades. They're, you know, depending on where you find them, any place from 10 to 20 bucks a piece or maybe 25 for two of them, something to that effect. But you're not going to get the entire story. You're just going to get up to a certain point where an arc ends and you're not going to get the final, I don't want to say the third act, but you're not going to get the last third, which... I thought was some of the cleverest and most interesting uh, part of the series, but uh, let's not get ahead of ourselves. We still have to move into our, our second uh, year here right. in just a, a little bit. Any final comments before we end this? We've been talking. No, for a while. no, no. Yeah. I think we've got, we've got our, we've got about an hour and a half. So no, it was, uh, it was kind of nice to wrap things up and I'm kind of interested to, to move into the next phase, which I, um, again, I, I haven't read and not familiar with it. I know what's coming up. So it's kind of fun. It's more fun stuff. And, um, just look for our, um, our re-release of the invaders reunion show. And then Kirk and I will be back, uh, for pickup with issue 13. And if you dibs on 13, I want, I want to do that. That's, 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 I that's yours. 14 yet, but I want to do 13. 13 is yours. I'll do 14. Uh, if you want to get a hold of us or leave comments or suggestions or whatever, any way you want to give us feedback, you can uh, write us at gottagetburned at gmail.com. You can always, uh, Facebook is a good place to uh, to reach out to us. We post our shows there. We also post them on iTunes, or Apple Podcasts. So either way, you know, if you feel like leaving us a review, then please do. Uh, or again, r r drop us a line as an email and let us know, you know, give us suggestions. We're always looking for what people that are listening to the show might want to hear next. You know, we kind of just play it by ear and, and, you know, Kirk and I wanted to do these kind of just two on two, one-on-one -on -one shows that we're doing and we want to cover Namor, but, uh, we're always open to anything that anybody wants to hear. Maybe something we hadn't thought about, or do you want us to, uh, revisit something 
you know, we're, we're, we're open for suggestions. Um, I will say with Halloween coming up, we are probably going to have some more, um, we usually do some type of a horror related book. So look forward to those. And I think that's it. Kirk, you got anything else? Um, this next month, we're draw back the curtain here. We're recording at the tail end of August, uh, in other two true freaks, uh, world events, um, pulling back the curtain here. September is the assistant editors month when, uh, their main hosts for back to the bins are taking a brief break, a hiatus, and some of us are stepping into the breach to fill in. So if you're interested in hearing us talk, tackle some other topics, you can find us on two true freaks network filling in for the, uh, the bins boys, so to speak. Right. Right. Uh, Kirk and I guest starred on a couple of those shows. So if you like us here, then you can jump over there and listen to us over there. Current non-burn stuff. I, I was going to say, I've had a lot of fun looking for individual panels or images to excerpt as a tease for, uh, for this uh, series. Um, I just kind of bullied my way in there because Tim did it for the first couple of issues. And then I've just kind of started offering him suggestions. Of, How about this one? How about now I'm just kind of posting them out there. I'm having a lot of fun that's, with that. Um, I don't know if find it amusing, but uh, ever since I figured out how to do clip, uh, snip and clip and, and how to share that, I'm having a hell of a lot of yeah. fun. With yeah, and I'm, if I'm, you guys appreciate that, I'd like some feedback on that. If you think it's stupid and it shouldn't be done, let me know. You know how to get a hold of us. Yeah, I think I think that's fine. It's a, it's a nice teaser to kind of kind of whet their appetite, and, so, and it just keeps it in it keeps and it keeps in pe- back of people's minds. They know it's coming on. But yep. all right, okay, Kirk. So well, I think I that's all I've got. So uh, I'm gonna again. If you've listened this long, I want to thank you for listening. Uh, I want to thank Kirk as always for coming on. He's a very gracious co-host and I'll enjoy recording with him. Uh, so for third degree burn, I am Tim Elliott. I'm Kirk Greenfield. Stronger than a whale, he can swim anywhere. He can breathe underwater and go flying through the air. The Thanks for listening. You can find us and many other great shows at tutufreaks.com. That's T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S.com. Third Degree Burn is spelled with the number three, R-D-D-E-G-R-E-E-B-Y-R-N-E, and is part of the Tutu Freaks network of shows. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Just look for Third Degree Burn, spelled with the number three, and Burn spelled B-Y-R-N-E. Compliments, complaints, and recipes can be sent to gottagetburned at gmail.com. That's G-O-T-T-A-G-E-T-B-Y-R-N-E-D at gmail.com. Drop us a line and tell us how we're doing. Till next time, this has been Third Degree Burn. Some men aren't looking for anything logical, like money. They can't be bought, bullied, reasoned, or negotiated with. Some men just want to watch the world burn.